With all the complexities, obstacles, and frustrations facing medical providers today, you still have peers out there getting things done and moving medicine forward. Who are they, and how are they doing it? Welcome to Peer Spectrum, the show where we uncover the creative solutions, innovative tools, and advanced practices of our peers throughout the full spectrum of healthcare. Here are your hosts, Keith Menken and Colin Miller. All right, everyone, welcome back to the show. This is Colin Miller here with Keith Mankin. Have you ever come up with an idea for a new medical device or a way to improve a problem area, but you have no idea how or where to go with it? Medical innovation is a massive multi-billion dollar business. Think you have to start a company yourself or work for the Mayo or Cleveland Clinic? Wrong. Medical innovation is happening in ways and in places you may not have even realized. Our guest today is Dr. Arlen Myers. He's an ENT surgeon and professor emeritus at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. He's an inventor, a former Harvard Macy Fellow, and a Fulbright Scholar. Dr. Myers was named by Modern Healthcare as one of the 50 most influential physician executives in the U.S. He has experienced both successes and failures with several medical device and digital health startups. He's done more things and written more articles and books than we have time to mention here, but you can learn a lot more about him in the show notes at PeerSpectrum.com. Today, Dr. Myers is CEO of the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs. This is an international medical innovation network with thousands of members worldwide. SOAP, as it is called, provides education, resources, and a powerful peer network accessed through local innovation chapters. It's a pretty cool organization, and we're going to learn all about it. With that said, let's get started. Dr. Myers, welcome, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me. Can give us an idea of how you got to where you are today and what your organization does? Sure. So um, I'm, a, at this stage, an emeritus professor at the University of Colorado School of Medicine, and I basically practiced academic ear, nose, and throat surgery for years. I went through a fairly traditional academic career pathway, trained back east, started working at Colorado in 1976, and went, as I said, went through a fairly traditional academic career pathway, which, as you know, involves publications, research grants, things to build your CV and, and move up the promotion ladder. My interest is and was in biomedical, uh, I mean, in uh, bioengineering solutions to ear, nose, and throat problems. And uh, I graduated business school in the early 80s and always had an interest in the business of science and the business of medicine and sought to sort of apply those skills to what I was doing as an academic faculty member. Make a very long story short, um, we invented a gadget that optically detects cancer and went through a commercialization pathway to use it in the head and neck, particularly for oral leukoplakia, intraoral precancerous and cancerous lesions. And that led to a series of events and results that eventually uh, brought me to where I am now. So, so was your feeling from the experience that it could be better, you could make it better, it could be streamlined? Is that why you got into the, the more the coaching and, and the uh, strategy standpoint? Or did you find that the process worked pretty well and you thought that it just, people just needed to be encouraged to do more of it? Um, so the answer is yes. Uh, the thing that motivated me to do what I'm doing pretty much was anger and mm -hmm. re revenge. <laughs> um, I, as you know, the business of science and the business of medicine is not something that is taught in medical school or in residency or oh. in practice. Right. 
although we're doing several things to address that. And, and the fundamental issue was that every scientist, engineer, doctor, domain expert I know has good ideas. They, they just don't know what to do with them. So we, so I took that as a personal challenge to create an environment such that people didn't have to make the mistakes that I made, uh, go through as difficult a path as I had to go through, overcome barriers that I had to overcome. So it's a lot like being a surgical attending. I mean, the basic idea is you teach people how to avoid making mistakes in the operating room. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to help people avoid making mistakes out in the business community. Was there anything prior to you starting to do it that that uh, that was like that out there? Did you have resources? Was there anyone you could turn to to say, hey, what the heck do I do with this? Or did you have to make it up as you went along? A little bit of both. Um, in, in those days, the innovation ecosystems were not nearly as advanced as they are today. So I had to kind of scrap and claw and put together the right people and, you know, deal with the mistakes and and trip over a lot of stuff. So I I think it was a little bit of both, but um, it certainly was not. There were a lot of barriers then and there still are. Hopefully we've eliminated some of them, but um, it was a combination of the two. Well, Arlen, let's start with your comment. They don't know where to go. And I think you're right. There's many physicians, providers out there who have a good idea, who see something that can be improved. Let's start with where they can go. What kind of help do they initiate with you, initiate from you? And I'm really interested in the local chapters that you have as well. Give us an idea of what, what's going on there. Sure. The Society of Physician Entrepreneurs is a nonprofit. So it's a 501c6 member association with a supporting 501c3 education and research foundation. Mm -hmm. It's physician-led, it's global, and um, our mission is to, uh, so essentially we're an open online innovation network focused on biomedical and clinical innovation. Um, Our mission is to help members get their ideas to patients or to support someone who is. We do that by delivering education, resources, networks, mentors, and experiential learning through an international chapter network. So just consider it like Rotary, or it's like a big sandbox, and, and Matt, or a dating service. And the basic idea is to connect dots. So if you have an idea, but you don't know what to do with it, then we help you conceptualize, well, What's the next thing that you need to do to move this thing forward? And how do you find a person who can help you get there? So if I'm attending one of these local chapter meetings, I'm imagining there's going to be attorneys there. There might be regulatory people, other experts in different fields to help you navigate through some of these, these hurdles that are out there. Exactly. So the basic idea is that when we put this together, uh, we did it with the understanding that sick care cannot be fixed from inside. That we created this mess and it's an unrealistic expectation to expect us to fix it. So that's the whole point of open innovation networks is to encourage not just inside out, bottom up, but outside in, top down, so that people can bring different perspectives to the sick care business model. So when you go to one of our meetings, as you said, you're gonna see physicians, entrepreneurs, service providers, investors, 
economic development folks, students, patients, anybody, somebody that wants free food. I don't care. <laughs> it just depends. I mean, the, the glue that holds it all together is the mission of trying to get an idea to a patient. So if I have an idea, what's the best path to start with? Because you also mentioned there's not a lot of business training in medical school, and we've actually discussed that quite a bit on this show. Do you think it's better to start to initiate a conversation with a company and try to partner with somebody? Is it better to try it on your own and go through all these steps and educate yourself? And Well, I have another follow-up question, but it's too much right there. Start with that. It really depends on your objective and and what you're you know where you sit um, and what you're trying to do. So first of all, I think there's well there is a misconception about the definition of entrepreneurship um, and particularly physician entrepreneurship. In my view, physician entrepreneurship is not just about creating companies. Physician entrepreneurship, in my definition are physicians who pursue opportunity. There's four parts to the definition. These are physicians who pursue opportunity with scarce and uncontrolled resources, the purpose of which is to create user-defined value through the deployment of biomedical or clinical innovation. Four parts, pursuit of opportunity, uncontrolled resources, user-defined value, deployment of innovation. So if you accept that definition, every doctor in the world has the potential to be a physician entrepreneur. We all know, of course, they are not. Right. In fact, it's been my observation, working with scientists, engineers, doctors, sort of STEM types, the ENTJs of the world, about 1% have an entrepreneurial mindset. So it starts with an entrepreneurial mindset. And we can have a conversation about, is that an oxymoron when it comes to discussing physician entrepreneurs? And I would say no. But it starts with an entrepreneurial mindset. The second part is, you can participate as a physician entrepreneur using the definition I just stated in many different ways. You can be a small to medium enterprise independent practice business owner, you can be a technopreneur, you can be an intrapreneur, that is an employed physician trying to create organizationally defined value. You can be a social entrepreneur, you can be a physician investor, you can be a service provider. So a lot of those roles have nothing to do with creating a company. A lot of those roles have nothing to do with seeing patients. They all have to do with creating user-defined value through the deployment of innovation. So to answer your question, what do you do? It depends on what you're tr where you sit, what are your objectives, what are your personal objectives, what are you trying to accomplish, and what trips your trigger? Because the value proposition that we offer is different for each of those physician entrepreneurship roles. If you have a device idea and you're trying to develop it and sell it to Medtronic, that's different than if you're trying to create a social enterprise in sub-Saharan Africa. Right. Of course. So that, that's interesting. Um, let's go back. You said 1% in your mind have this entrepreneurial mindset. Do you think when you look at medical training in the United States today, 
there obviously is a lot of pressure to do what's on protocol, not to get too far outside of the bounds, not to test ideas. And do you think that medical training in general trains people with this mindset? Does it stifle it? And is there almost a selective bias in uh, medical school admissions for people who kind of follow the rules and stay within the lanes? Yes, yes, and yes. Mm. So let's start with the selection process. I did not get accepted to medical school because I was creative. I got accepted to medical school because I could memorize a bunch of stuff and do well on a standardized test and answer the questions that I thought the interviewer wanted to hear. Everyone knows how to play that game. So that's not why I got into medical school. And my suspicion is that's why most people don't get into medical school. So we have a problem with if we are focused on selecting people with an entrepreneurial mindset, we have to change who, how, and when we recruit people. We can have that conversation. Second, once you get into medical school, the educational, the training and educational process for bioentrepreneurship or the business of medicine is virtually non-existent. Right. So in my view, we are practicing, we're sending fighters to the front with blanks in their rifles. In my view, it's educational malpractice, but others don't agree. And we're little by little seeing some movement toward creating what I call entrepreneurial universities. And again, entrepreneurial medical schools derive from entrepreneurial universities. And again, an entrepreneurial university is an institution of higher learning that graduates every student with an entrepreneurial mindset. It does not mean you train every student how to create a business, as I just indicated. It simply means you, you train people how to identify opportunities and take advantage of them through the deployment of innovation. I don't care if you're a French major, a comparative lit major, or a calculus or a math major. And finally, once you go through medical school and residency training, then you find yourself in an environment that is extremely hostile for which you are not prepared to survive, let alone thrive. So we're trying to fill those gaps. And there are several ways we're trying to do that. But fundamentally, it's everything from accreditation organizations. For example, the ACGME has six competencies for residents who, who complete training. One of them is not the ability to practice medicine using a viable business model, hmm. which I believe should be included. So if you look back on your own path, do you think there was a moment maybe after residency that you changed your mindset to question things a little bit more, to be more observant of things that could be improved around you? Do you think you always had this kind of in the back of your head? Uh, Give us an idea so people who are listening to this going through residency can kind of think about how they would change their own mindset. So my view is, and this is a, this is a topic that has consumed a lot of time on the blogosphere, is, you know, can entrepreneurship be taught? And 
can creativity be taught? How much is nature versus nurture? How should programs be structured, et cetera, et cetera? My view, and it's strictly my view, is based on observations and experience over the past several years, is that you have to have some entrepreneurial DNA. But just like your actual DNA, some of the um, uh, proteins and nucleotides send protein signals and some do not. I mean, of all the DNA we have, a very few of the genes actually transcribe and transcript for right. proteins. Right. The rest, who knows what that does. But you got to have certain genes to produce a certain endpoint. So I believe you have to have a certain amount of entrepreneurial DNA, um, which is essentially your personality. And, you know, if you look at personality types, whether it's a Neogram or Myers-Briggs or whatever, we all are kind of built a certain way and we see the world a certain way. And that's just the way we're built. So those of us that were fortunate enough to do a good job of picking their parents wind up with an entrepreneurial mindset. Now, I think that probably has to do, contributes about 15% of the total package. That's just the number I picked up and I'm just grabbing it out of the air. It's not <laughs> 95, it's not two, it's about 15. And the rest, so that's your personality. Mindsets can be changed. And that means how you see the world, your frame of reference, your, your structure, what lens you look through. Is the glass half empty or half full? Do you see a problem or an opportunity? Do you delight in the journey instead of the destination? Are you a defender of the status quo or someone who wants to destroy it? Those are, those are, person, those are mindset attributes. And I believe, uh, based on my experience of teaching this now for a long time, I believe that people can change their mindsets. It's not easy. Probably the most difficult thing is to get someone to change, but it's doable. And then you have the issue of translating that mindset into action. Because I remember the first part of the definition is a process, a pursuit of opportunity. So it's a bias to action. This is not about sitting around and thinking or feeling about stuff. It's about doing. So translating personality to mindset, mindset to execution is what we're talking about. And when you're dealing with doctors, scientists, engineers, people who rely on domain expertise, it's a challenge. But that's what we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the context of all of this, I work at the University of Colorado, which is a state-owned institution. As such, I work in the three most change-resistant industries possibly in the world. <laughs> Healthcare, higher ed, government. Right. Interesting. So my lifetime goal is to change three cultures. So um, at what point um, do you want to step in? Um, I mean, it sounds like every point, but 
Do you want to select the people pre-med who are going to be entrepreneurs? Do you want to look at the pre at the medical class and and pick out the ones who are entrepreneurs and and coach them? Um, uh, and maybe you have programs set up for for all these things. Um, and certainly at the residency level, what kind of educational programs do you see? All right. So a couple of points. Number one, this starts in K through twelve. Sure. So if, if you're just looking at this, you know, from the last year of college, you're too little, too late. And there are lots of people that are trying to kind of move this upstream. And I'm working with some folks to try to help them. Number two, I do not believe you can pick or make entrepreneurs. I believe the best you can do is help people who have self-selected and provide them with a fertile field to grow. I draw the analogy that I'm an ear, nose, an academic ear, nose, and throat surgeon. I cannot train, nor have I ever been able to train surgeons. I can't teach someone how to be a surgeon. I can teach them how to do surgery. Mm -hmm. Surgeons in every other medical specialty come self-selected for a number of different reasons, but they just do. And it's actually a very efficient and effective technique because very few residents actually drop out because they feel they wound up in the wrong specialty. They're right. very good at self-selection. So once they come to me, I can do something with them. It's the same thing in entrepreneurship. You have to be self-selected. Well, I think it's safe to say that the audience that's listening still self-selected to continue to learn more about what we're talking about today. So we have them with us. Sure. Let's talk about the popular press out there. When you look at Fast Company and Forbes and, and all the websites on the Internet, there's a lot of focus on the 22-year-old who's in his parents' garage developing the next unicorn billion-dollar company. But that, of course, is an extremely small percentage of the innovation that actually happens out there. You've talked a lot about um, the front lines of medicine, and that's where innovation actually comes from. Give us an idea of who an inventor, an innovator in medicine actually is. Okay, so I disagree with your statement that you're on the front line of medicine, and that's where innovation comes from, because the fact of the matter is it is not where innovation comes from. And if you look at any industry with a very long established cash cow business model, the change force comes from outside that industry, not within it. So I often tell people that if you're going to medical meetings to see what's new and innovative, you're in the wrong meeting. You should be going to Google. You should be going to AT&T. You should be going to Microsoft development meetings. You should be reading stuff that has nothing to do with medicine. Because that's where the force of change comes from. So I disagree with that. I guess more what um, I'm thinking about is in the clinical environment, when a clinician sees something that can be improved, right? these ideas are often sparked in that environment. Would you agree with that? Um, may, well, almost, because what really happens is that a new idea, in order to, for it to get to a patient, usually comes from the confluence of a problem seeker and a problem solver. And you can get at it either way. You need a team to put it together. But technopreneurs, that is people who are solution-driven, 
have to interface with problem seekers, that is marketing, business development, futurists, external technology experts, have to collide with the problem solver. And again, if you do not have an entrepreneurial mindset and you are not wearing what I would call innovation polarized lenses, you don't see the fish in the water. You can throw as many hooks as you want. I don't know whether you're a fly fisherman or not. I live in Colorado. I fly fish. You can throw hooks in the water all day long, but it really helps to be able to see the fish. And in order to see the fish, it helps to have polarized lenses. So the lenses are the mindset. It allows you to see the opportunity, and that's what differentiates good entrepreneurs from not-so-good entrepreneurs. They're not good at seeing patterns and connecting dots. Now, my argument is doctors are no better or worse in either side, problem seekers or problem solvers. Everyone says, well, the doctors, day in and day out, they're making rounds, they're in the OR, why doesn't somebody do this? I see this problem. I'm not so sure that's true. Hmm. It depends on your lenses. No, I think that's fair. Let's talk about that for a moment. So if we're just talking about processes in a hospital system, something yeah. that somebody feels very strongly could be improved on. Right. We, we know sometimes communication and business acumen is not obviously a focus in medical school. Right. What is your advice for somebody approaching administration with an idea, how to do it, when to do it? Okay. So it's most effective. So I've spent a fair amount of time working on this problem in various organizations. In other words, uh, how do you create a learning organization that is supportive and acceptive of innovation? It's a big deal. Lots of folks make lots of money talking about this stuff. Unfortunately, I'm not one of them, but there are people that do this for a living. So it really has to do with, um, do you, does the organization have what I call an innovation learning system that facilitates the flow of innovative ideas and delivers? In my view, the large majority of sick care institutions do not. They haven't gotten that far. And consequently, they basically become sophisticated suggestion boxes. They become high-tech suggestion boxes, which, in my view, really is not an effective or an efficient way to facilitate innovation. And there's the personal part, which is, again, people who are champions who have an innovation mindset. So what you're trying to do is match the people with the innovation mindset, with an organization that has an innovation learning system. And when those two come together, then things happen. When they don't come together or are not in alignment, things don't happen, and you spin a lot of wheels. And you wind up creating chief innovation officers that do nothing, spend a lot of money with six-figure salaried people in the C-suite, and you don't get any impact out of a big budget from a hospital innovation system. It's a waste of time. So what would be a good example? I mean, I've heard of innovation centers at the Cleveland Clinic, Wake Forest University, Duke. Right. What's a good example out there that you can point to where this model is, 
having a pretty good effect? Well, it depends on how you measure and define the impact. Now, we're, we're all uh, you know, used to pointing to the Cleveland Clinic and the Mayo Clinic and kind of the branded names. My plea is to define the endpoint. So what comes out of a health innovation center? Last I heard, there were 75 to 80 hospital-associated innovation centers. So my question is, where's the beef? What are they delivering? And in my view, the only thing that matters is patient-defined value. Mm -hmm. Everything else is smoke. Vanity numbers, you know, how many this and that we have, how many people, how much money we've invested, all that other stuff. Those are all inputs. Those are all processes. The only thing I care about are outputs. Did the dog eat the food and what did it create? And I don't really see a whole lot of metrics that are comparing one to another. So I want to know in terms of user-defined value, that is patient-defined value, it could be the patient experience, it could be quality, it could be cost, it could be the usual, you know, the quadruple aim. Does it make the doctor experience better? I want a quantified output. So I can compare one to the other, but I don't really see that. Yeah, well, who's, who's uh, going to generate that? Whose responsibility will it be to get those metrics? In my view, the innovation center. Okay. If you don't have a handle on what you're trying to measure, you don't, it, you know, there's that old saying, you get what you measure. Right. Well, if you don't, if you don't know what you're measuring, you're probably going to get it. Do you have a sense that the innovation centers are talking to each other and saying, well, this is what we really have to look at. These are the metrics that will be really helpful. Or do you think they're just working as individual competitive centers trying to reinvent the wheel at each place? The latter. Okay. I think they're talking at each other. Right. Now, eventually, as academics are want to do, there may be a consortium and a journal and a whatever, mm -hmm. but I don't, I don't get a sense that, you know, it's just like if you're a patient and you want to know which doctor to go to based on a value equation, you can't find that. So I want to know if I want to participate in an innovation center at a hospital, which one do I go to? And this gets to recruitment. So if you're a finishing resident interested in an academic career with an entrepreneurial mindset, and you want to go to a place that is going to support your entrepreneurial career, you want to go to the best place. It's like picking the best surgical residency or picking the best residency in your specialty. Right. And there's certain ways that you do that. You know, who's on the faculty, number of publications, reputation, research support, money, all that other stuff. I think innovation centers should have the same metrics because they're comparing to they're competing for talent with each other. Right. But they don't. So that's one of the things that we're trying to make clearer. Now, so when you ask me which one's best, how do I know? No, that's the answer to the question. Right. I don't know. The who's the best aren't there. Who's the best doctor? I don't know. I can tell you who got the best whatever on the magazine cover. But I can't, I can't tell you who got the best results after a thousand nose jobs. And how long have some of these innovation centers been there? Are many of them more recent than the 75 to 80? 
yeah, most of them, most of them, I'd say the la the vast majority of them have come to light within the last five years. In your opinion, can you do innovation if you're not at an innovation center? Can a, a person in a community who has an idea and has resources and maybe gets a, a, a company or, or a capitalist to, to fund it, is that innovation that will matter? Um, and uh, can, can they compete against these centers? You bet. In fact, I would argue if you're looking for innovation other than in drug discovery and development, Mm -hmm. If you go to an academic medical center, you're looking at the wrong place. Because the vast majority, it's a basic tenet of community-based innovation that anyone can innovate. I don't care if it's the person sweeping the floors. I don't care if it's a person in central supply. I don't care if it's nursing, pharmacy, whatever. Everyone has the opportunity to create user-defined value in the system. And the fact of the matter is that given the emergence of organizations like SOAP, which is a community-based collaborative network, 23andMe, crowdfunding, decentralized internet-based activities, the vast majority of good ideas come bottom-up, not top-down. Right. Let's talk about that. Let's, let's talk about the chapters. Yeah. So if I'm a physician in a smaller community hospital, this chapter doesn't exist in my town yet. I want to get it started. How would I begin that process? Okay, so the way it works is, um, first of all, all the chapters, while it's an open innovation network, it's called the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs. So every chapter needs to be led by a doctor, a physician. Um, and what happens then, with the support of anybody that person wants to engage we don't care who they are at the local level. Um, so the first step is to identify an individual who is a doctor, who has an interest in this, not necessarily an accomplished entrepreneur, but someone who has the passion, who has the stomach for it, and wants to participate. So step one is you raise your hand. Step two is you have to show up and God knows right. we all run into day in and day out people who raise their hand and don't show up. We're a no-show society. So we need somebody who's really going to do this. And by this, I mean build a local community of interest through social media, through other communication skills, engage them, and organize them at regularly held networking and educational events in their area. Now, we help them do all this stuff because we realize people are busy and we realize that they only have so much bandwidth, but that's basically the idea. Now, once we identify somebody, now this can be in Brazil, it could be in Sub-Saharan Africa, it could be in Denver, of wh where I run the chat. But the basic idea, find a doctor who is engaged, who will build a community of interest and organize meetings on a regularly scheduled basis. And would this, these meetings be sponsored by somebody? Uh, we obviously have the um, Sunshine Act and other issues today. Right. So the, right. So the way this works is that um, we expect the chapters to actually generate revenue for SOAP. I mean, the purpose of the chapter is to spread the mission, advance the mission, is to build the community of interest, and that is get memberships, 
of which it costs $75 a year, not much, and to engage what we call PALs, Partners and Alliances, which are potential sponsors, people who have a mutual interest in physician entrepreneurship and innovation. And typically, for example, uh, we have a meeting host where an individual who is a member of the chapter will host the meeting. So an example would be at Colorado, we have a meeting the first Thursday of every month. The first hour is networking, the second is educational and informational. The host spends a hundred bucks to buy coffee and bagels and stuff, which we have delivered. We have it held in a free venue, which is the Colorado Medical Society. They were nice enough to give us the space. And the person who's the host pays for the food and gets up and gives a 45-minute informational or educational presentation. It's not a sales pitch. It's not an infomercial. It's to educate and inform people about a topic in bioinnovation and entrepreneurship. So the result is we don't spend any money to do this. In fact, we generate money because sometimes we get people to sponsor the chapter. They give us the money. It goes into the not-for-profit, and we do God's work. So that's how it works. <laughs> so I guess the bylaws for each chapter would be important here because you want to make sure that someone's not coming in and sneaking in a sales pitch. So there has to be some kind of guidelines right. for right. sure. Well, we, we're, we're a pretty loosey-goosey organization. We, we rely on people to, to do the right thing. And we're not going to keep track on everybody. So basically, we let people know what our expectations are. We try to hold them accountable as best we can. But it's, it's a decentralized network. So we, we try to give them the wiggle. And every chapter is going to have a different culture. It's going to have a different ecosystem. The one in New York City is going to be different than the one in Kansas City or Denver. It mm -hmm. just depends on you know the assets on the ground, what works, what doesn't. And we rely on the chapter leaders to help us with that. Well, how about a case study here? Has there been an instance when a chapter has collectively gone in together and developed a product, a medical device, a new system? Or is it more just a place to come and, and draw on resources for your own idea? Right. The idea is not for the chapter to create anything other than a platform. We don't create anything. What we do is connect dots so that individuals in the chapter can create things. We're a matchmaker. When, you know, when a matchmaker matches a, a woman and a man, they can't take responsibility for the baby. All they did was connect the dots. Right. That's what we do. Interesting. That is. So if you're in a smaller community and you don't have a patent attorney anywhere close by, would I be able to go right. to you, Arlen, and send you an email and say, hey, could you find someone in your organization who may be able to teleconference during a, meet a meeting? Is that, are those resources available as well? You wouldn't have to send me an email because when you join the organization, you are now in a membership directory that has 1,300 people in it and you search patent attorney, and then you connect to the patent attorney. That's the point. Regulatory affairs, patent attorney, sales and marketing, whatever. That's the point. You, we connect you to a community of interest that is there to mutually support each other. Oh, I can see that could, would be an incredibly powerful tool. So uh, you can um, you can join the society and not necessarily have a chapter locally. I mean, you can be a, a remote Ex member. 
Exactly. So, right. you know, because not everybody has, you know, a, a, a major metropolitan resource. Of course, yeah. But you would be surprised. I mean, you know, if there's 35 people in your town, that's one thing. Right. But you don't you don't have to be in the middle of Singapore or Sao Paulo, Brazil, with 22 million people to make this work. Right. You just have to have a reasonable community of interest with the appropriate representation by the different skill domains to make it work. And if you don't, then the, the whole point of this is we're there to help each other. And, you know, every day somebody sends me something. Arlen, do you know this? Arlen, can you connect me to that? Can you yes, I could hook me up on LinkedIn to this person? And that's basically how it works. So we yeah. have approaching 26,000 people on the LinkedIn site. We have multiple tens of thousands of people on social media. We have 1,300 people paying dues to be part of the, of the organization. So it's a pretty big network. And right. if, you, if you can't <laughs> find somebody that can help you, that's your fault. <laughs> I also think that, um, that it's the thing that uh, people would come out of the woodwork if they knew that it existed. That if you had a chapter and you published it or you bro uh, broadcast it and said, hey, come on out and meet, you might have people who didn't even realize that they had entrepreneurial ideas to come and just sort of see what it was about. Yeah, that's the case. But our experience is that when these chapters start, um, it's still my biggest challenge is to identify and support physicians with an entrepreneurial mindset. Right. So we can have all the meetings in the world, but you can't change the stripes on a tiger. Right. So yeah. it, it's there's only so much you can do. You can only lead the horse to water. So um, we, we do the best we can to make people aware and, and programs like this, which is why I'm participating, increases awareness of what we're trying to do. And, uh, you know, we try to support people the best we can. But again, they have to be self-identified. I, I can't right. I can't change people. Do you have, um, I guess uh, the way I would phrase it is protective resources. Um, one of the problems is a lot of doctors think they're really savvy at business. And of course, we don't have the MBA. We don't have the training. And we uh, have the idea and we talk to somebody. And next thing you know, it's been taken away from us or it's been swallowed up by the hospital or the university. Do you have resources that would tell a doctor this is what to look for in a in a um, in a contract? This is the kind of support to get. Yes. So part of our education is about identifying and protecting intellectual property. Right. And you know, and, and if people is if someone's clueless, and and they say to me, I have an idea. Can you hook me up with so and so? Then the next thing out of my mouth is, be, be, have you patented it? Have you hired, you know, have you signed a non-disclosure agreement or a confidentiality agreement? What have you done to protect your intellectual property? Mm. Be sure that you don't give away the secret sauce. So we, we coach people as, you know, if, if they're clueless, we, we coach them about what, here's what you need to know before you know, you meet this person. And then we can get into more formal education, you know, right. but yes, the short answer is education, resources, networks, mentors, experiential learning. That's what you need. That's what you need to be successful. Now, Arlen, you have your MBA. What's your advice out there for people who do feel they need to, to increase their business knowledge? Is it still worth going after the MBA? Is there, are there other avenues to explore business education? All right. So here's my blurb on the MBA. Uh, 
and I'm and just so you know, I mean, I, I graduated business school back in the 80s. I was the first doctor in my class in my program to graduate. This is a long time ago. Um, half over half of the approximately 145 medical schools in the country offer combined MD MBA programs. We are presently graduating over 500 MD MBAs a year. I helped create the MD MBA program at the University of Colorado in 1990 something. So that's the background. That said, I think in most instances, it's a total waste of time. Hmm. Now, MBAs basically deliver four things. And they are connections. I call them the four C's. Connections, credentials, credibility, and content. In that order. And if you think about it, you can connect to whomever you want on social media. You can get all the education you want on, social, on, on the internet. Right. So what you what you really get from this and and it's and I'm a professional educator. So far be it for me to discourage anyone from getting any kind of education. I think it's valuable. You never know when you're going to, you know, it's just it's valuable for all the reasons we know. However, my problem with MD MBAs as they're presently structured, they they don't address the specific needs of the domain, which is bioentrepreneurship, and we're changing that because I believe bioentrepreneurship is a distinct and separate academic domain that is not discussed in most MBA programs. And number two, they don't give you the knowledge, skills, abilities, and competencies that are required to thrive in that domain. Most people who go through MD MBA programs do it because they want to, they think it's going to improve their ability to be a manager or a leader in a health service organization, which I do not believe is true, or they're interested in health policy and they want the credential after their name, like they want to work for, I don't know, the government or some state agency or something like that. If you are interested in physician entrepreneurship, on the other hand, and specifically physician biomedical entrepreneurship, there are very few programs that will give you what I believe is a value education in that domain. Mm -hmm. So what's the answer? We have multiple bioentrepreneurship education initiatives at the University of Colorado, which I'm happy to anybody can just go on the Internet and look at them. And we're working on something called an MBE instead of an MBA, huh. a master's in bioentrepreneurship instead of a master's in business administration. Very interesting. So, so should you get an MBA? It depends. It <laughs> depends, you know, what your goals are, what you're trying to accomplish, what's the value proposition, how much is it worth to you? Do you really, and there's another point to this, and that is, as I said, we've created these joint degree programs. It's not as if, we don't have to worry about student loan burden for medical students. Do we really want to add the cost of an MBA to that burden? And guess right. who pays for that? We do. 
the taxpayers. Right. So I don't really know whether that's, I, I, well, I know. I don't think that's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. So I think, as I said, so when people say, Arlen, I want to be a bio entrepreneur. Should I get an MBA? I say, no, go out and get some experience, learn from the school of hard knocks. And if it's something that you want to supplement with a formal education, knock yourself out. Perfect. Well, Arlen, we're getting very close to the hour. and We want to be respectful of your time. Uh, if you've got a few more minutes, we're just going to do maybe three more questions. Does that sound good? Yeah, sounds good. Okay. Back to the chapters. Do you guys have any involvement with high school students, college students? Because you talked about once you get out of college, maybe a little too late to be exposing students to some of these entrepreneurial mindset, uh, you know, connections. Yeah, yeah, sure. So anyone, like I said, can come to these chapter meetings, including students. And, you know, oftentimes if someone says, I'm a student, I want to come, I said, great, come as my guest. You don't have to pay. Just show up because I'm trying to make a difference and I want to give them, you know, I want to get them juiced. So, yes, not infrequently, students will show up. In addition, um, there are several organizations, for example, STEM academies uh, at the K through 12 level. And STEM education has evolved from science, technology, engineering and math to STEAM, which is science, technology, arts, engineering or engineering arts and math, because it's been found that when you add the arts component, people become more creative and entrepreneurial. And that's evolved to something called STEAMIE, S-T-E-A-M-I-E, which is science, technology, engineering, arts, math, innovation and entrepreneurship. So when you add the innovation and entrepreneurship piece to the STEAM, then you create impact. So when you put all that together and you package it K through 12 and integrate it with undergraduate and postgraduate education, then you start to get something that makes sense and that looks reasonable. Now, we still have to validate those models, but indications are that that structure process leads to better outcomes. It also gets us into mentorship, which is something we've talked about quite a bit on this show. Uh, that's an opportunity to not only find mentors, but be a mentor for somebody. Arlen, is there a mentor in your life that you found has been particularly helpful and maybe changed your direction, changed your perspective? Yes. I mean, all of us have, you know, people we remember. My, my specific one is, uh, well, there's several, but one I would mention would be a fellow named Ben Eisman, who was one of the grand, one of the grand old men of general surgery. Uh, Ben was a, he recently, he died about two or three years ago. And to make a very long story short, um, he landed on Omaha beach as a corpsman. Hmm. He went through three, he went through three wars. He wound up being a rear admiral in the Navy. He was one of the experts in mass casualty and trauma care served as the chairman of surgery, I believe, at five institutions. And he was my first boss when I finished my residency. So you And he climbed the tallest peak in every continent. Wow. He died when he was in his 90s and to his dying day was writing for the New England Journal. Wow. I mean, the, the guy was incredible. So 
he, he was one of my mentors. And the thing that I liked about him, and, and the interesting thing was that our careers sort of paralleled, certainly not to the level of accomplishment of him, but we followed each other around various affiliate hospitals. We, we both worked at city and county hospitals, VA hospitals, university hospitals, and our careers, our career paths sort of took us along. So th the interesting thing was my very first day in the operating room, he showed up and scared the hell out of me. <laughs> and the la one of the last days of his life, I saw him walk in the halls of the VA and we were having a spirited conversation about the future of medicine. So he was he was the kind of guy that just really made a difference. Wow. wow. Good answer. Last question. This is something we ask a lot of our guests because we've noticed there are certain habits and routines that people have in their lives that help them maintain efficiency, their performance. You know, some of the answers include a morning workout, meditation, nutrition. Just give us an idea of some of your daily routines and habits that help you every day. Yeah. So I actually wrote a, an article called Entrepreneurial Habitology. And, um, Again, uh, I mean, you know, the usual stuff of take care of yourself, get exercise, wake up, you know, early to bed, early to rise, all that stuff. But I think, um, in my view, uh, the, the mental habits, I think, are uh, a significant part of staying engaged because it's very, very hard in this field to stay engaged and persevere. There's so many barriers, there's so many ups and downs, there's so many roadblocks that you, you just really have to train your mind to be persistent. And I think that mind training is part of entrepreneurial habitology. The interesting part about it is that there's actually a neuroanatomy and neurophysiology to it. Habits reside in the amygdala, in the, mm -hmm. in the basal ganglion, in the brainstem, and new ideas or habit-changing ideas reside in the neocortex, in the frontal neocortex. So you actually have to practice moving synapses from the frontal cortex to your, to your basal ganglion. And, and that requires practice, repetition, mind games, uh, you know, that kind of stuff to make it into a habit. So what I would say, the bottom line is, it's hard to make habits into habits <laughs> and or, or it's hard to change. It's obviously hard to change old habits into new habits. And, and to me, that exercise is, is more productive sometimes than, you know, doing squats or curls or aerobic exercise. So that's what I try to practice pretty much every day. And I write, you know, I, for an example is I pretty much, created I, I made it a habit to write every day mm -hmm. and great. that's that's hard right it is no yeah. well arlen we're so anyway that, that that's perfect yeah. another great answer and um to finish it up just give our audience uh, an idea of where they can learn more about soap about you follow your thoughts online sure, sure. so if you want to be get more interested or involved in soap you go to uh society of physician entrepreneurs which is at www.soapnet s-o-p-e-net.org um we have a social media a presence we have a linkedin site we have a twitter handle at soap official s-o-p-e-o 
F-F-I-C-I-L. I'm at, at Arlen MD. We have a Facebook page. And I've written several books and articles uh, which are on Amazon. So if you, for example, the blog book of Physician Entrepreneurship, which is sort of an online resource for people that want to learn more about physician entrepreneurship, um, there's several of those posted on Amazon. Great. Well, Arlen, thank you so much for joining us today. We really enjoyed it. We really appreciate the time. And uh, hopefully we can have you come back on sometime. We, I had to stop myself from going down the rabbit hole on a few discussion points, but I'd love to follow up on those <laughs> sure. at a later time. Sure. I'll be happy to come back, and I hope I see you on the SOAP membership list site. Great. Actually, I think you might. Can count on okay. it, yes. Okay. Right, thanks, Arlen. Thank you again, thanks and thank lot. you, everybody, for joining us. This is Pure Spectrum with Colin Miller and Keith Mankin signing off. We'll see you here next time. Take care. Thanks for joining us on Pure Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at PeerSpectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at PeerSpectrum.com.